On Before the Bestseller, we talk with our favorite authors about the books they wrote and the stories behind how those books made it big. I'm your host, Alex Straffy, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Michael Rucker has, or I should say Dr. Michael Rucker, has been kind enough to come back on the show to talk about how he sold over 10,000 copies of his book, The Fun Habit. And he has specific knowledge on reaching out to journalists, which got him into the newsletters of NPR and CNN. And he also did a great job at networking his way into a book publishing deal. And so that's why I thought he'd be a great author to bring on to talk about the marketing of The Fun Habit. So welcome back, Michael Rucker. Dr. Michael Rucker, appreciate you coming back on to talk about The Fun Habit. And uh, last time you came on to teach us how to have more fun uh, and be a little less miserable. And this time you're coming on to help authors be less miserable in the marketing <laughs> of books because you have been very successful so far in the promotion of your book, uh, despite the fact that it uh, came out, I believe, during COVID, correct? Uh, no, it La- came out, yeah, a little after. So, uh, yeah, so first question, how, around how many copies have you sold so far? So I don't have firm numbers. My understanding is domestically, including ebooks, hardback, and Audible, it's over 10,000. Um, and then it's been picked up in five different languages. Uh, it got picked up by Bluebird. Um, and uh, so dem- uh, internationally, I-, I don't have the figures. Okay. So a little over, uh, it sounds like over 10,000, uh, which is obviously, you know, 90% of books only sell like 200 copies. So clearly that's <laughs> more than, than the average. Why did you write a book? So I've been wanting, uh, so the simple answer is after I got my PhD, I had, uh, you know, the itch to do something. In addition, I uh, got my PhD late. Both of my parents are professors. And so I kind of did it just because it was a family trade. And then I really enjoyed looking for um, research gaps. And so for folks that aren't familiar with how academic writing works, when you're doing a literature review, um, to potentially ideate what your research might be. You're looking for where is there not a dent in the universe? And so um, I created a dissertation that ended up getting picked up for publication. So that I guess technically this is sort of my second book. Um, and uh, as I explained in a previous podcast, but for folks that didn't listen to that one, uh, I identified uh, yet another research gap, this idea that uh, the Western pursuit of happiness had kind of become problematic. And so instead of just identifying that as a problem, I also wanted to provide a solution. And so that was the impetus for it. I think a little bit of the backstory too is um, through serendipity, my best friend just happened to be a classmate of Nir Ayals at Stanford. So I got access um, to Nir while he was still putting together a lot of his ideas. I believe Hooked had come out, but um, it had just come out. And so I was able to have some lunches with him. And we talked a lot about what ultimately became indistractable, but I had similar ideas with regards to um, poor use of time and things that kind of hijacked our ability to do the things that we wanted to do. So we diverged, but we had some amazing conversations about, you know, potentially working together. And then also he's been an amazing, you know, as you know, he wrote a, a blurb for the book. He's been an amazing mentor. Yeah, I, I also love that, you know, a lot of these people who focus on optimization now and happiness, we will go through that stage of, you know, like time blocking to to the core and trying to <laughs> quantify our lives and then realizing that that's no way to live a life. 
uh, when you get down to it, uh, which is just a, a cool thing that it sounds like you and uh, Nia were able to develop together. Um, Simon & Schuster. So you ended up going with uh, Atria, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Why did you go uh, the traditional publishing route? So that was just through networking, to be quite frank. I you know, kept my ear to the ground. So probably a similar journey to a lot of your listeners. And it was just sort of a Plinko board. Uh, I followed a gentleman by the name of uh, Tim Grawl, who's, uh, I got introduced to him through Chris Gillibo's World Domination Summit, which is essentially, uh, you know, it was an interesting conference. The last one took place um, uh, last year. And but he's an author as well. And so it brought in a lot of digital nomads and writers. And that was really like, hey, I want to do this thing. Let me go to where writers are. Um, my understanding is, uh, I forget his first name, but Goins has an interesting one. Oh, Jeff um, Goins, st- yeah. yeah, he doesn't he still have an interesting, uh, I think he literally calls it tribes, right? I was going to say tribe, but I think that's literally what he calls it out of Nashville. Um, so these things still exist. You know, I didn't want to uh, give anybody false hope since Chris decided to um, conclude his last year. But uh, so I started going to these uh, conferences that had writers at them and just started asking questions. So that led to kind of following uh, Tim's work. He had worked with folks that I admired, like Daniel Pink. Um, and then ultimately, I uh, joined him for a mastermind. And Tim really took me under his wing. You know, I think that sort of access, it was a it was a considerable investment on my part. But I think one of those things that if you do your due diligence and understand where your money's going, um, that it can be quite impactful. And that was true for, for this. It was essentially, you know, 12 of us um, in Tennessee, because he, he lives um, in that area as well. Um, and because of that, you know, I got access to someone that had a reach a lot farther than mine. And so he made some introductions. Ultimately, this is before James Clear got really big, but I got an introduction to the same uh, agent that works with James. Um, And so to some degree, you know, it's where luck meets preparation, right? There was some serendipity there too, because, um, you know, I got to work uh, with a good agent who ultimately was able to sell. I guess for folks that don't know, because I found it very interesting, my background initially coming out of graduate school was I worked for Universal Studios in the story department. And so I'm used to what we call development hell, right? There are these amazing scripts that can spend almost a decade, like Suspect Zero um, was in development hell for you know a two-digit sum. And so you can sell a screenplay and it might never sort of see the light of day, right? For the traditional publishing world, it's a lot different. You're um, proposal gets shot, and you know within a finite amount of time whether or not it's going to happen. And so um, I got an amazing acquiring editor uh, by the name of uh, Stephanie Hitchcock, um, and she sold me on Atria. So it was ultimately, you know, this kind of Plinko board of meeting amazing people, um, you know, doing my own due diligence and learning, you know, to keep abreast of who the players are and who I wanted to work with. Um, and then ultimately, you know, my proposal going to market and Atria being a, a good fit for me. How can someone else replicate something like that, right? You said, you know, you're putting yourself in a position to get lucky, right? And and that's what, whenever I talk to an author, it's always what it comes down to, right? Or even, you know, you look at Eckhart Tolle, you know, seeding copies, and then one just happens to make it to Oprah, right? But you don't make it to Oprah unless you've done some legwork to get to get the book out there. So yeah, if, how, I mean, how would you recommend someone kind of approach it in the same way you did? Is that possible, do you think? 
I do think so. Um, so I led, I left some breadcrumbs already in my previous answer, right? I really think it's keeping your ear to the ground, being humble. I think where I see folks not necessarily get in the way, it's just a deliberate choice is not understanding that if you want to go that route, you're, you do need to create a product that's going to have some degree of appeal, right? And so, you know, I did give up some creative control um, by going that route. But again, one of the reasons I loved working with Stephanie, because she allowed me to uh, maintain my ideas and gave me great feedback. I've heard, you know, for others, sometimes that's not necessarily the case. Um, but, you know, figuring out what that path looks like and then accepting good advice, uh, you know, questioning if it's really sort of out there. But if someone who's, you know, been around the block 10 times, so you truly uh, do believe their pedigree, because there are a lot of, you know, a lot of folks out there that, you know, could potentially scam you or, or, or oversell you on something. But if you believe their pedigree, then listen to what they have to say. I mean, I'm definitely gotten in my own way <laughs> in a lot of things in life. But this was an area where I did luckily come at it with, uh, you know, maturity that I might have not had later, because I started this sort of, you know, at the beginning of my 40s. And so I listened to these folks. Um, yeah, I can I had a manuscript, I had to completely rewrite it. I had a proposal, um, I ended up working with an, uh, what they call a developmental editor, um, that again, had a pretty significant pedigree. Uh, amazing guy, by the way, David Moldauer, you know, I highly recommend him. Uh, he was an acquiring editor himself before he got into the business of developmental editing. And he helped me for quite some time. Of course, you know, I, I paid a consulting fee, but, um, you know, to package the proposal in a way that would make it attractive to get a good agent. Um, and then because I had built this network of folks in the literary world, I was able to get introductions to um, agents. And then, then, you know, as I disclosed, that's when kind of luck took over as well. Yeah. And one of the names you mentioned earlier, Tim Grohl, I love his book, Your First 1000 Copies. I was looking up at my shelf to see, usually I have a copy, but sometimes mm -hmm. I don't because I hand it to friends that come by and then end up needing to buy another copy. Um, so yeah, I love, love Tim Grohl too. And I don't want to plug anyone specifically, but I ended up working ultimately on the launch plan with one of Tim's underlings by the name of uh, Sue Campbell. Um, she has a website called Pages and Platforms. And man, she just gives a lot away for free. And it certainly pays dividends for her, but she's just a great person. So um, again, for anyone that's kind of, you know, scribbling down notes, I would check out that website and check out Sue's work. She's just, uh, she was a delight to work with. Pages and platforms. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, what, I mean, what did you guys put together for the launch? Uh, so, you know, what did your launch look like? Yeah. So part of her process is she has a spreadsheet that um, allows you to culminate a bunch of sort of research and development. I think the main elements are not rocket science again, right? You know, Tim's fundamental saying to anyone he works with is you want to go from being unknown to known. And so you create marketing mechanisms to facilitate that, right? And so um, you look at what podcasts are uh, reaching the type of persona that might buy your book. Um, and then you figure out how do you make connections with those folks and create value for them so that they want to reciprocate and create value for your, you as well. And so, you know, that was the bulk of our work is identifying who are folks that I can provide value to that would potentially amplify the message of the fun habit.
And that's the crux of it. What value would you provide back to these people? Uh, essentially content, right? I mean, I would hope that you think I'm providing value right now, you know, by providing information to your listeners. So we were looking at parenting podcasts where some of these ideas of fun, you know, especially for parents that, um, you know, sort of like, I just don't know what to do anymore. And I'm not having fun, you know, when we're together. So what are the problems of the audience of those podcasters? And how can we provide solutions um, to that audience? One that uh, uh, her name's Jeannie that I just adored was a thousand hours outside because our message is aligned. Right. And so figuring out how you can collaborate, um, you know, in that, uh, and then, you know, there's all the basics, you know, uh, so just for folks that are kind of at the starting point, you know, what kind of value can you offer to, uh, your potential audience? Right. And so even if that's something as simple as a white paper, or, um, you know, a, a mini course, or maybe a, a email distribution, I think Ryan Holiday uh, is doing that really well with Daily Dad, right? What is something that you can give away for free, so that you can attract an audience? Because what I will say is in the practical nonfiction space, you definitely need a list to be able to approach um, any major publisher, they're going to want to know that you are going to be able to participate in the marketing. So if you don't have a marketing background, I think that was another arrow in my quiver that was helpful. But if you don't, I would it would behoove you to at least be able to speak that language because as part of your proposal, they're definitely going to judge you on the sample chapter, um, but they're also going to judge you in earnest of, are you going to be a good collaborator with regards to getting the message out about this book? Because nonfiction is just um, delivered in a much different fashion than fiction. A key that I heard there about when you're forming these connections with the right content is you weren't reaching out to the parenting podcast saying, hey, learn about the fun habit. You're saying, hey, parents struggle with this. Let me talk about this for parents, which is a whole chapter in your book is, is talking about how parents, you know, or a section in your book, which is, you know, how parents, um, you know, need more fun in their lives. And so it's, you know, what I, I'm hearing there is that, you know, you you tailored your content towards the actual show, the podcast, which just like, it's funny. It's like, yeah, that's obvious, but so many people don't do that. They just like pitch their thing, but they don't actually say like, okay, what are you covering? How can this be relevant to you? So that was like one little thing I picked up on there. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the marketing world, we call it um, spray and pray, right? And that's just not going to work anymore. I think it might've when podcasts, uh, we're hungry for guests, but I, you know, there's, it just seems like the podcasts that are worth reaching out to finding a way, um, to provide value first, you know, the sort of Adam Grant approach, um, one, it just feels better. If not, I think similar to the narrative that we spoke about, you know, in the, in the first half of our podcast, if you're just trying to, you know, to suck value from other folks, I, unless you're completely unethical, that's eventually going to drain you. Um, and so listen to the podcast first, you know, see if they've had guests on that are like yourself and then listen to those, you know, for ways to build that potential bridge. I will say, cause maybe this, you know, I think that's a fairly general idea that you could easily find online. Some of the more creative things I did, and I did this in conjunction with a virtual assistant is look for every single news article that I could using Google alerts so that I could make a repository of reporters and bloggers that had an interest in this topic. 
um, and then tried to create conversations with them, followed them all on Twitter, engaged with their content, you know, let them know that I had a book out, offer, uh, you know, early copies of it, you know, create dialogues on things that they find interesting and see if I can provide value. Certainly because I had done all the research, a lot of these folks that were kind of geeks about the science like me, I would provide them uh, research studies, you know, which saves them a lot of time. So that was a way to create value. Um, and then also another thing that I think worked kind of at the onset was reaching out to universities that have courses on um, happiness and seeing if they would include that in their syllabus. So I don't know that had a huge impact, but I'm sure it certainly led to a few hundred sales because you know, now you're on their suggested reading and all you had to do um, you know, to get that opportunity was gift the book to the to the professor. And that's led to some amazing um, connections as well. Some I still chat with because we're just geeks about, uh, you, you know, the, the subject matter. Ryan Hamilton out of Emory, you know, comes to mind. It's just fun, you know, especially if you love, you know, what you're writing about. Yeah, this is awesome. Um, how many hours per week do you say that you spend on your book marketing? Now it's, you know it's coming for a landing, but I made it a full-time job uh, at the launch. Uh, I negotiated a sabbatical with my company because in earnest, I didn't want that stress. Certainly should eat my own dog food, right? Since I'm preaching not, you know, not to engage in overwork. Uh, I had 10 years with Active Wellness, who's my employer. So they were gracious about that because I had put in my time. I understand, you know, that suggestion comes from that place of privilege um, because, you know, I had, uh, you know, put in time with that employer. So I had earned, um, you know, the ability to take a sabbatical. But to answer your question, you know, I I wanted to, I wanted to provide, uh, you know, reciprocate the opportunity that Atria gave me. So that was my choice, you know, to make it my full-time job. To go there. Um, and your last comment actually segued perfectly into my next question, which is reaching out to journalists. And, you know, you, you called it a serendipitous uh, encounter. But we recently both watched your book sales explode when you <laughs> were put into a major publication. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How did you get it? Um, and why do you think it was so successful? So that was another, uh, you know, serendipity through connection. She's the person that reviewed the book is a fellow writer who heard about me through my collaborator, actually, um, and was like, oh, this is interesting, you know, through a conversation on Facebook comments. So not even through Messenger, right? But we started engaging through comments and she'd like, and so um, funny enough, the invitation was put out, but so were a lot during, you know, the energy and sort of excitement of that. Um, and so I think uh, let me answer your question first. So we ended up ha scheduling the interview. It, it took longer than I thought. I didn't necessarily know when it was going to drop. Um, then I found out it was. Um, and then, you know, it was it was amazing. A similar thing happened with NPR, you know, where. Um, and so I think just to back up a little bit with both NPR and with CNN, the extra push was because the interview um, and the article were well done. So the credit goes to the associates that created the content. Um, they hit a chord and then um, because of their popularity also hit their newsletters. So CNN pushes out a health newsletter and I found out I was featured in it because of the popularity of the article. And then the same thing happened with NPR um, where the article had garnered enough attention that uh, I was placed in their newsletter, which I think is really what creates the traction, right? Because that's an easy click. Um, and so, but 
the sort of takeaway for folks that are is I planted a lot of seeds. I mean, I planted like 400 seeds and these just happen to be the two that worked. Right. And so um, a lot of it is because I did kind of sacrifice my income for a few months um, because in earnest, I wanted the book to be successful. Yeah. Uh, to see those copies. Uh, any way, any other way that you could recommend that someone kind of engineer a similar experience? I mean, you said you seeded 400 different opportunities to get those two, but those two ended up being massive. Any other ways that you kind of engineered it, it so that, you know, those articles were popular uh, or that the interviewees uh, were able to really hit a chord with their audience? Yeah, I think one of the things that I did that's been helpful that I've been surprised to hear that, you know, oh, that's innovative. Because I think for me, coming from the marketing paradigm, um, I, you know, sometimes you're surprised to find out, right? Like, oh, I thought, you know, everyone did this, you know. Um, but I used seren- or used reciprocity to build audiences on all my platforms. And so to be able to show uh that reach was important in selling the proposal. So to the extent that you understand modern tools. So for me, um, because I really built the corpus of this, you know, up until 2015, it was definitely Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but now it's going to be different, right? Um, you know, Twitter certainly, I don't think has that impact and, you know, acquiring editors aren't going to look at your, you know, the size of your Twitter account, but whatever you think is going to be impactful and, um, and you feel like would, give you more visibility about the book, you want to build that up, um, whatever that looks like for you. So part of my success was also because, you know, I was a beat writer for Very Well Health. I was a, uh, you know, did exist on um, other sites that that helped me build this audience that ultimately, you know, helped uh, foster my marketing plan, which I think in conjunction with a good sample chapter was the reason you know, that there was some appeal to the book uh, with the publishing world. And just to give people reasonable expectations, you know, how, you know, how many years have you been building your audience for? Yeah. So I started in 2007. Yeah. I always think that's, that's a great thing to know because people don't realize that the stuff really is decades in the making in order to, you know, and then once you build up one thing, then other dominoes uh, fall from there. Yeah. Um, I'm from the school of Seth Godin, right? Like, you know, he's always kind of preached that, if you don't enjoy doing this, you know, like as kind of a daily practice, then, um, you know, you might want to think about other things. And it goes into kind of the ethos of everything. Like if you are so outcome focused, right, again, looking at some of the pitfalls of happiness, but I think this is true in most endeavors, like you only want the win, but you're not really enjoying how you get there. Ultimately, it's going to lead to some hard times. A call back to uh, hard fun in your book, uh, a <laughs> whole, whole good chapter. Um, what uh, another final question I love to ask as we come into the, the final stretch here is what didn't work? So what didn't work in your book marketing? And what can you tell authors that it's not worth their time or money to pursue? Hmm. So there's two there. One, I went, I thought that book contests, especially because I a little bit confused of the fiction versus nonfiction because I understand that contests really can help fiction books. You, you might know that better than me, but so I submitted the book to a lot of contests that ultimately just was a money burn for me. So, um, you know, it might work for some folks. It, it didn't work for me. The other 
was a double-edged sword. Um, I went heavy, you know, when I was researching reporters and researching uh, universities and institutions, I was also researching books of grammars that I thought I would have a good fit with. I probably got too aggressive there. So I have um, some amazing experiences with books to grammars. Blake books comes to mind. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, library mindset was another great one to work with. Um, but because I had created so much visibility in that space um, and ultimately had to turn some folks down, um, there were books to grammars that blatantly gave the book a bad review on, uh, thing, you know, on forums like Goodreads. Um, just to essentially, you know, give me the middle finger. And that wore me down. It was, it's, you know, tough reviews are already hard, but when you're just getting them because someone's mad at you, it doesn't feel good. I really felt like I had supported that community because I did invest some money and some time in supporting the ones that I wanted to work with. And I was always gracious about the no, like, hey, you know, I've reached saturation. And um, yet, uh, you know, it ended up kind of, um, I think, being unfortunately not net positive for me. Did uh, you mentioned Blake books and library mindset? Did those move? Uh, Do you find those to move a lot of copies? I don't. It, it's tough. Um, I know that there are sophisticated ways to track that. You know, if I had really gotten uh, worked with them, you know, to create UTM codes and for folks that don't know, you know, to track it. But ultimately. Um, then you're probably going to uh, can not cannibalize, but erode sales because it would require them to go to your page first and then go to Amazon. So it's becomes really tough. Um, and, and the good books, the grammars will tell you as such, you know, to track sales. What I will say is both of those added thousands of folks to my audience. So when their you know reels or their uh, promoted posts hit, um, you know, I would see real followers, real fans, um, you know, start to follow me. And so, you know, just being able to create that wider net for me was worth it. I'm excited when I watch you hit over a hundred thousand books. Cause I know it's going to happen. This, this book has oh the goodness. of it. Uh, and you're definitely uh, taking a, a good approach to your marketing. So appreciate it. So I wanted to have you come on, um, you know, both of us cheered together when you recently were put in a uh, CNN, that was a, a big moment. And um, I'm excited to keep watching what you do, uh, Dr. Rocker. So appreciate your time coming on. Uh, and like I said, just excited to, to keep watching your journey. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I know there's many other things you could have been doing during this time. And I hope you found this episode incredibly useful for you and your journey. And if you did, or if you have any feedback, I would love to hear that in a review on Apple, that would be fantastic or anywhere else that you are listening to this show. So thank you. And if you're the type of listener that is also an author or looking to be an author soon, feel free to email me at alex at advancedamazonads.com. That's alex at advancedamazonads.com. And I'll add you to our weekly newsletter where I send out all of the best marketing tips I've ever heard from authors that I've had on this show and many of the authors that we work with. So I look forward to hearing from you if that's something you'd find useful. And either way, I look forward to having you back for our next episode.